Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's prestigious and special guest is a neuropsychopharmacologist specializing in the research of drugs that affect the brain and conditions such as addiction, anxiety, and sleep. Professor David Nutt, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So, David, maybe did you want to let my listeners know a little bit about, I guess, your journey and, and how you became so interested in, in the human brain? <laughs> well, yeah, I've, um, it goes back to childhood, really. When I, when I started thinking about thinking, uh, it kind of became clear to me that the brain's got quite a lot to do with it. Um, and I went to university to do brain science, and then I changed to medicine because I realized that... Uh, I was interested in human brains rather than fish brains or frog brains. So I became a doctor so I could more legitimately study human brains and also would do it from, you know, the perspective of um, a knowledge about illness. And then I became a psychiatrist because that was way the most interesting branch of medicine <laughs> and it obviously to do with the brain and, and also challenging because, you know, there's a lot of controversy in, in, in psychiatry. And I quite like to sort of um, be there, you know, where there's, where there's debate and dissent and, uh, and I spent the last 40 years doing research and treating patients. Amazing, amazing. And so I guess for, for my listeners, a lot of our discussion today will be centered around different classes of drugs. So first of all, I'd love to start with um, defining psychedelics. Yeah, well, that's a, quite a challenging thing. I mean, to, typically psychedelic, psychedelic, it's from the Greek, it means mind revealing. And obviously the classic psychedelics are drugs like magic mushrooms or DMT or LSD. But then drugs like ketamine and salvia, sometimes they're called psychedelics too. Even I've heard MDMA called psychedelic, although it, I'm not sure it really is. So it's a, it's, so the core psychedelics are mushrooms, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca. But then drugs like ketamine and salvia do have some similarities in the sense that they disrupt consciousness and they produce altered states of consciousness and MDMA. Well, it's the therapeutically useful, <laughs> but it's not hallucinogenic, but it does share. It has some overlap 
in terms of their therapeutic value with drugs like psilocybin. Mm. So I guess then from the, the therapeutic, the therapeutic use of some of these um, compounds, maybe I know that you know quite a lot on uh, MDMA. So maybe did you want to share where's the current research at with MDMA psychotherapy? Yeah, well, it's at a very exciting juncture at present because just a few months ago, the MAPS organization, which is this charity that was set up about 30 years ago by Rick Doblin to try to keep MDMA as a medicine, because it was a medicine until it got banned for recreational use. And they've just finished their phase, what we call the phase three, first phase three study. And that's a very important study. That's a placebo-controlled trial of MDMA in PTSD. And the results were very, very powerful. Very, you know, big effect size, twice as good as placebo, which is unusual in in um, most mental illnesses because placebo is quite powerful. So the, the great thing about it is it, 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 it's, there's only one more step they need now, one more of those trials, and it will become a medicine. So that trial's underway. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed, the end of the year, this year, it'll be published and we... We might have it as a medicine in many countries, including yours, I hope. <laughs> so maybe, I guess, with um, a compound like um, MDMA, do you want? Do we have a, an understanding as to its mechanism of action in terms of maybe f- facilitating the extinction of fear or um, helping with PTSD at all? Well, you, I think you know the answer there. <laughs> yes, exactly right. So MDMA is a very interesting drug because it is a unique, it's an amphetamine-like drug, but it, it's very different from amphetamines. Amphetamines give you drive and energy, and, whereas um, MDMA gives you tranquility, insight. Originally, when it was discovered and um, was being used for psychotherapy by Shulian and, and his wife, and their, it was called empathy because that's what it does. It really does produce empathy. Why it does that, we're not sure. There are theories. It's through serotonin release. It definitely releases serotonin. But it also, um, that serotonin release may then release oxytocin, which is which is a bonding hormone. It's the hormone that bonds people together after they've had sex, for instance. So, but anyway, whatever mechanism it is, it definitely produces a lot of empathy. But it also reduces anxiety, particularly negative anxiety and negative emotions. And it's that reducing emotions that allows people to, who've been traumatized, who have traumatic memories, uh, which come back, the emotions come back and disturb them. It allows them to go into therapy so that they can get mastery over these emotions. And and as you said, extinguish them. Now, when I've been working in PTSD, I've written two books on PTSD, and I've been working in the field for 30 years. And one of the things we discovered really early on, back in the 90s, was that when you, when you, People with PTSD, when you ask them to to go back to where the, where the uh, trauma was, often they the anxiety is so overwhelming. I mean, they would run out of the room or they'd faint. So you couldn't do therapy. Whereas MDMA seems to contain the emotion and allow them to keep their cognitions and keep their factual memories going. And so they can then talk about it and eventually overcome it through talking and have a sort of cognitive mastery over it. As, as well as, you know, rather than just suppress it. And so as part of that, um, that stage three study you mentioned before, was it a combination of obviously drug therapy in combination? Yes. Yeah. Very good. Absolutely, Lucas. Yes, it's really important to, to state this pretty much up front for all what we're talking about with psychedelics, MDMA. We see them as drug-facilitated psychotherapy or psychotherapy-facilitated drug treatment, but they work together, and that's the power of them. I mean, the MDMA is that that's the class we just discussed. It's classic. You you use the MDMA to allow you to engage optimally in the therapy, and uh, the therapy is what guides you back to where the trauma was, helps you think about it, and helps you restore your faith in life and people and yourself afterwards. So, the psychotherapy is normally a course. Usually, it's a, you know between about a ten and a fourteen week course, but interspersed in it are two or three sessions in the in the maps um, trial it was three sessions in our we've just finished a trial and got it published of mdma in alcoholism wow. people drinking to suppress stress and trauma and there we had two sessions in a abstinence-based course but so it's, it's traditional psychotherapy helping people 
using, you know, to basically get more confidence, get mastery, get uh, control of their lives. But we've put a couple of sessions of MDMA in so they can really grapple with the problem that caused them to have PTSD or that caused them to start drinking. Interesting. So I guess there is also one particular pathway that I've noted has been activated or reconfigured by the use of some of these compounds, the default mode network. So maybe do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So, so the default mode network, it's called the default mode because it's the part of the, it's the network in the brain that is active when nothing else is happening. So we can, act, we can activate it in you and our listeners now. Well, all we need to do is just close your eyes. And when I stop talking, don't do anything. Just sit there with your eyes closed and reflect on what you plan to do later today. Right. Let's do that. Okay, now open your eyes again. Now, in, when, you were, when, you, when your eyes were closed and you weren't hearing anything, if we scanned your brain, we, the area of the brain that was, would be the, the network that would have been activated by, by the thinking about the future is called the default mode. It's active only when you're not doing other things. As soon as you open your eyes, it switches off because you're looking around. As soon as you hear something, it switches off because you're listening. As soon as you move, it switches off because you're doing things. But when you're in a state where you're just doing thinking about yourself it's the active network and it's what's remarkable about it it's it started off being discovered as the network which was there when you were doing nothing else but it turns out from our work with psychedelics it, it it's it's the network which defines you because psychedelics switch it off and that's why you have these strange experiences like you're floating into space you know you're visiting god you know you're seeing all these strange colored lights because your brain has been liberated from the normal processes of control which the default mode network imposes on you mm. and so some of the some of the compounds that appear to manipulate that network um from what i'm aware Psilocybin is absolutely one of those, or perhaps it's yes, all, all, all the all the psychedelic, all the serotonin psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, DMT. They all disrupt that network. Wow. Okay. And so, I guess as part of um, the research on psilocybin, maybe we can sort of segue and discuss a little bit on that. Um, how much? I mean, how much emphasis are you placing on that research, or how much time are you spending looking at what's what's happening there? Well, that's you know that's my main research. Um, theme at present, my academic research. We've done the study showing how it worked. I think important for people to remember, I didn't start out working with psychedelics thinking I was going to have a new way of treating mental illness. I was just interested to know what the psychedelic state was. I, one of my claims to fame is I've given more drugs to human, different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone else alive, probably. Um, and the only class of drug I hadn't really studied up till now was, was psychedelics. And I, and, and it was difficult because they were illegal and there was a lot of prejudice against them. But I got to them, when I got to that age, which was, well, about 55, I thought, well, you know, if you've got to do it now, you might not have time to do it. So I started doing this research and, um, and discovered the, the amazing effects it had in the brain, switching off the brain, switching off the default mode, producing profound alterations in consciousness, but also dampening down the brain networks of depression, one of which is the default mode. And it was that discovery that you, you could dampen down the depression circuit that led us to write a grant to get uh, a study to study psilocybin de uh, depression. Mm. And we took people with resistant depression. They'd all failed on one or two drugs. No, they'd all failed on more than two drugs. Some had failed on over 10 drugs. They'd all failed on CBT. And um, results were amazing. A single dose, 25 milligrams of psilocybin, produced the most powerful impact of any treatment ever in resistant depression. And that's led a company called Compass Pathways to go on and now do a, a proper trial of that with placebo. So that's where we started. And then we got interested in the whole question of, well, what other disorders do you know the default mode is abnormal in and, and, uh, apart from depression? And um, we, you know, but there are quite a few. There are, there's addictions, there's obsessive compulsive disorder, there's anorexia, and these are all disorders where people get locked into thinking, overthinking, thinking things that are wrong, but they can't escape from the thinking. Like the brain has kind of taken over the mind. It's, it's running, running, running um, a program which is not right, but you can't interrupt it. 
And what psychedelics seem to do is interrupt that program and allow the brain to kind of reset itself. Mm. And our patients, interestingly, when you know, when you did at the depressed patients, we wrote a, a, a sort of detailed account of the, the, the experiences of many of them. And they often use this analogy. It's like, you know, their brain was out of control. It couldn't, it was doing its own thing. And then it was like a computer running away with a virus. And then they, the psilocybin kind of either defragged it or reset it or reformatted it, just got it all sorted out. And, uh, and you know, often it, those effects can be very long, long lasting, not in everyone, but in some people, they're, they're cured still eight years on. Well, that's the other aspect I wanted to discuss is um, the somewhat semi-permanent effects of these compounds. What, what, what's the difference between these versus some of the current medications on, on the market? Well, that's, that is one of our key questions at present. So we can answer that in several different ways. So the first thing is the point you've, you've just made is that um, a single dose of cytosine can change people forever. I mean, you know, like often people say, Steve Jobs said, you know, LSD, one of the five most important things in my life. You know, it probably helped him come up with the idea of a company, which is now the, the first trillion dollar company by fusing technology and art, you know, in the, in the, to make the most beautiful machines like the one I'm talking to you from at present. So, so yeah, we know the enduring effects of psychedelics, but it, it turns out that in in conditions like depression, yeah, you can have enduring effects. Uh, but even if you don't have enduring effects, you still have quite long-lasting effects from a single dose. Whereas traditional treatments, well, what are you doing? You're giving a dose every day, usually, for many months, or maybe even for years to protect, protect people against relapse. So that's a different way of, different time course. So why is that? Well, the time course, we now have got a lot of, and again, since we started showing that psychedelics were interesting. A lot of preclinical researchers have gone back, you know, they, they've gone back to the test tube, they've gone back to the brain slice, and they've shown that psychedelics can promote the growth of new connections in the brain, new synapses, new, um, new synaptic spines. They, they, they're, they're what we call plastogens, they increase plasticity. And it's likely that that increase in plasticity, if it occurs in a circuit which is, a good circuit, a circuit that keeps you well, can explain why the effects are long-lasting because you've actually changed the brain. You've put it back into a, a more normal state. But then the other question is, and this is what we haven't yet finally published, but we're working on, is that we actually think that they work in different parts of the brain. We're pretty confident from other people's work that, that SSRIs, traditional antidepressants, work in what we call the limbic system, the emotional circuit of the brain. And the, um, the analogy I look to use with these is a bit like um, if you break your leg, you put your bone in plaster of Paris to allow the bone to be stable so it can reset. You protect the bone against any more damage and it heals. And that's what antidepressants do in the limbic system. The limbic system is overactive. Chronic stress leads to overactive limbic system. That leads to depression. Antidepressants protect the limbic system. It's like they put a plaster around the limbic system and over a period of weeks or months, it heals. And that's why these drugs take weeks and months to work because it takes that long for the, um, for the brain to heal. But what psychedelics do, psychedelics work in the higher part of the brain, the cortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain. And that's where the thinking is. That's where the thought processes are. These repetitive thoughts in depression, you know, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I shouldn't have done that, I've let everyone down, I'm going to kill myself because I don't have any value. Those, those, loop, those repetitive loops which destroy people effectively, limit their lives, they, they're disrupted by psychedelics because they're cortical loops and these drugs work in the cortex. So you break people out of these cortical loops and then they can, for a period, during the trip, they can kind of realize that the thinking's wrong but they can also come up with new ways of thinking. And, the, and then that new way of thinking can be consolidated by the plasticity effect of the, of the drug itself. So it's a, it's a double whammy, and that's why they're so powerful. They, they get rid of the old thinking and they help you reset the new. Mm, makes sense. As far as um, the actual compounds themselves and perhaps maybe some of the metabolites, are we also skimming the surface in terms of what we know about you know, psilocin and, uh, you know, some maybe other metabolites and things like that? 
Well, with magic mushrooms, psilocin is the active ingredient. The mushroom is very clever. It's uh, it's very it's quite sophisticated. So psilocybin is uh, a pro drug. It's mm-hmm. the active ingredient is psilocin, and the when, but the way psilocin is not very stable. So the mushroom sticks a great phosphate group onto psilocin to make psilocybin, and this phosphate group makes it very stable. It's like a salt. And then when you take it, the phosphate group gets flipped off and then the active ingredient comes out and floats into your brain and does the business. Um, But I mean, there are obviously many analogs of uh, psilocybin that could be made and companies are beginning to make them now. They all look a bit like serotonin. I mean, the difference between psilocin and serotonin is that is where one hydroxyl group is. In serotonin, it's a five hydroxyl and in psilocin, it's a four hydroxyl. I mean, it's a tiny difference. They both work on the same receptor. Um, it's just that what they do is slightly different. And we don't, un- we don't yet understand why psilocin is so much more powerful than, than serotonin. Mm. And, and I'd imagine even with some of the, the newer releases of the, the ketamine derivatives like S-ketamine, maybe did you want to explain a bit about that? Yeah, so ketamine is a very different kind of pharmacology ketamine is a blocker of glutamate receptors and um it's a bit complicated to explain so i won't go into detail but by blocking some glutamate receptors ketamine liberates others so the brain becomes hyperactive and uh, and that that also helps to overwrite or, or extinguish or rewrite or reformat memories but it doesn't it doesn't seem to produce the long lasting changes that psilocybin does or LSD does. And that may be because those long lasting changes are, have to be embedded in the receptors, the glutamate receptors that ketamine is actually blocking. But ketamine given twice a week over a period of time seems to lift mood and can, in many people. Now, it's, the thing about ketamine, it's an anesthetic. It's was been around for 40 odd years. It's very safe, doesn't suppress respiration. Um, generally is injected IV or IM. But uh, in psychiatry, psychiatrists, are few of them like give injections. So what's S-ketamine is, a, is one of the, the two isomers of ketamine, which has been developed by Janssen as a, a treatment for depression. You take it intranasally, so you don't have to inject. And it can produce as a dissociative state. People need to be sitting somewhere safe and be looked after and attended to for an hour or so after it. And they, they can have it um, twice a week, usually for about four weeks, and then gradually once a week as the effect builds up. The one great advantage of ketamine, although, it, although you need to keep giving it, it does work even if you're on an SSRI. Mm-hmm. It's actually licensed for people who fail to fully respond to an SSRI. Now, psychedelics don't work if you're on an SSRI because SSRI somehow blunt, well, they block their effects probably through changing the serotonin receptor. Yeah, interesting, interesting. As far as, I guess, when it comes to, I know you're, you, you're very well versed in terms of um, also understanding alcohol. Um, did you want to maybe, you know, how does alcohol fit into the whole picture here in terms of uh, a, a, a drug? Not of- an antidepressant. <laughs> <laughs> it is a depressant. Yes. But of course, it's a, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's the ultimate social drug and it's uh, it's been used by humans for millennia there's a new theory i don't know if you've come across this the new theory that that this, the foundation of what you might call agrarian um human society when humans morph from being nomadic to being settled we used to think it was because of growing wheat and so people had to be there and tend the wheat but now there are people saying no no it was to, it wasn't growing wheat to eat it was growing wheat or rice to make beer and it, it was alcohol that actually changed our, the whole way of human life to, to becoming settled and, and uh, sort of villagers as opposed to nomads. Anyway, so alcohol's been around a long time, but it's a different, it's not a different receptor system. It, in low doses, it stimulates the GABA system, the inhibitory system in the brain. But at high doses, it, when you get to a state of blackout, you're actually doing a bit like ketamine does. You're actually blocking glutamate receptors, uh, which is why you impair memory. But, um, and then, of course, if you, you know, if eventually, if you block all the glutamate receptors, you start breathing and die. Um, but in, for most people, a gentle level of intoxication is due to turning on GABA, calming down your brain, 
a little bit of dopamine release gets you going a bit. The, the serotonin release make you more sociable. It's a very complex drug, Argo, because it's a very small molecule, and it fits into GABA receptors, glutamate receptors, and also has knock-on effects on dopamine and serotonin and endorphins. It releases endorphins too. Mm. So I guess does I mean does alcohol have any? Do we know if it has any impact on that default mode network at all? Yeah, well, strangely, we do. We get although isn't it amazing? The first proper MRI study of alcohol ever done, we did about three years ago. I mean, a drug which is used by 4 billion people worldwide has almost never been studied in terms of its brain. But the main, the major, more, we were surprised the primary action actually was in, in limbic system more than the cortex, which we found, a bit, which is a bit surprising really, given the fact that GABA receptors are particularly in the cortex. So we don't, we don't fully understand that. So, um, uh, it's a, yeah, I, I can't I, categorically, it doesn't, I think in high doses, it probably does when you, when you forget where you are. And I don't think you ever forget who you are, but <laughs> and alcohol, you often think you're better than you are, but, uh, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it, it, it's not a, has anything like as profound an effect on the default mode as the psychedelics then. There is something that I've, um, I've explored myself is, and I'm not sure if you've looked into it as well as the, um, the phenomenon of the the alcohol afterglow effect. Have you ever sort of looked into into that at all? You mean the next day? The next day, people feeling significantly better. Well, uh, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, but, but some people don't. <laughs> but you're right. No, I, I know this is a very important clinical. And I used to use this clinically. I used to use this. And I, I, I'll just share with you. I mean, this is completely, you know, sort of, you know, just clinical anecdote hmm. but there were particularly people with bipolar disorder i would find with depressed particularly if they had the depressive aspect to that they often get a lot worse the next day after alcohol and uh, and i would always caution them strongly because i think i think coming down from alcohol can be it's destabilizing to the nervous system and some people get depressed but as you say some people get activated and that's we know why that is that's noradrenaline that's why people um sleep gets disrupted. So when you, if you go to bed drunk, you fall off to sleep very fast because you turn on the GABA system. It is dampened down your brain. You switch off, you go to sleep. Uh, and you actually, interestingly, you know, people often sleepwalk when they've been got drunk. And that's because they dampen down their cortex so much that it, when they start walking, they don't wake up. So you, because you need the cortex to be awake. But then the adaptive responses in the brain often lead to disrupted sleep. So you typically wake up after four or five hours and that's because you've got noradrenaline overdrive. Now that noradrenaline overdrive can be energizing. I mean, it often can give you a headache as well, but you know, tachycardia, your heart can beat. But for some people it can be energizing in the very same way as we often do sleep deprivation in people who are depressed to try to lift their mood. So yes, yeah, so, so there's an individual variation is quite high there. And yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's not something I would recommend as a treatment for people, but on the other hand, if you find it, you know, every now and then it benefits you, then yeah, why not? Well, it's it's interesting you also made that comparison between um, the alcohol and the sleep deprivation because I personally, just sharing my own personal response, sometimes when I have a very, very late night, like maybe 3, 4, 5 a.m., um, and I get very minimal sleep, maybe 4 or 5 hours, that next day sometimes my mental clarity is amazing. Like, I have really good clarity of thought. It's really interesting. It is, yeah. Well, I, I understand that. When I was a student, you know, there were times when I felt a bit you know, flat and under the weather and didn't didn't have enough energy. Yeah, if you actually sleep deprive yourself a bit, you can re, you can re-energize yourself. It's actually it's becoming a bit trendy now. You, I think you've you know you're promoting it as well. But it's there are you know you, it's, there's no doubt less sleep can give you more energy the next day. The problem is if you keep doing it, then, it, then it, the engine might crash. Yeah, absolutely not sustainable. Um, so I guess there's something else that I'd love to explore with you, David, and that is actually um, the concept of you know, tolerance because um, is it possible that you know, we, can build, we can still develop tolerance to these psychedelics just like with any other compounds? Oh, yes. No, that's the... Actually, that's one of the good things, good and bad things about them in a way. But the good thing is that they're not addictive because if you take them every day, the tolerance develops so fast that you, and you can't overcome it. And do you know who taught us that? 
Not- the American Army. The American Army. Yeah, so back in the 1950s, when they, people realized what, how powerful LSD was, and there was this great concern that the Russians were going to just spray LSD into, into every uh, yeah. large <coughs> reservoir in America. Make it so they, and and they would, they, the Americans were concerned that their troops were going to be poisoned on the battlefield by LSD. They thought, Let's, can we, how can we stop this happening? Now, at the time, we didn't have an antidote. We do now. We have antagonists, but in those days, they didn't. So they, they looked to see what they could do, and they realized if they treated their soldiers with LSD for two or three days, by the fourth day, it wouldn't have any effect. So that's how we know quite a lot about the safety of LSD, because it, it, it's safe if you take it for a few days, but you also get this tolerance. Uh, and uh, most people don't know that. Most people assume that because LSD, you know, these drugs are in Schedule 1 of the UN conventions and, and you know, they're, they're seen as very dangerous, people assume that they're actually addictive, but they're not. They're anti-addictive. There's studies now using psilocybin to treat tobacco addiction, to treat alcohol addiction. Actually, the, the, the most remarkable stuff goes back to the 1950s and 60s when the, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, he was a great protagonist of LSD. He believed LSD was going to revolutionize the treatment of alcoholism. And he got five or maybe six, six studies funded by the U.S. government. And the effects were remarkable. One or two LSD trips were giving outcomes which are twice as good or maybe three times as good as the best we've got today for alcoholism. But we haven't used them in 50 years because of this fear that these drugs are dangerous. Well, those studies you just mentioned there, are they... Are they- censored are they public like where where are they no they are public they have yeah they have the two norwegians a few years ago uh, two norwegians went out and got all the original data as well i think it's in the public because they were funded by u.s government so i think they have to be kept public and uh, and they that's those are the ones that did the reanalysis yeah and that's something we're looking to do because alcoholism i mean i've estimated this if these drugs were banned by america in 1967 so it was 50 years of banning and I reckon 100 million people have died prematurely from alcohol in the last 50 years, probably more, but let's say 100 million. And even if LSD only helped 10%, that's 10 million lives saved. And you think, well, how many, how many lives would have been saved uh, from the ban? You know, how many people would have been deterred from using LSD from the ban? And how many lives would have been saved? I mean, probably none. But let's say, let's suppose there were some. You know, let's suppose it was, you know, Suppose it was even a million. It's probably more like 10, 10 or 20. But let's say, even if it was a million lives saved, you've still got 10 million lives lost. So the equation is so much in favour of keeping uh, these available as medicines. I mean, it's outrageous that they were banned and, and not allowed to be medicines. It, it, it makes no sense at all. And it was clearly a political thing, and there's nothing to do with it. There's no health aspects of this at all. When it comes to the... Um application of anti-addictive compounds like right now if if somebody's trying to give up either like alcohol nicotine what does western medicine how do they even approach that well that's quite a big question Uh, well i'll start well with nicotine um there are two two things you can do you can switch to, to 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 vaping in some countries which allow it not every country allows it or you can have nicotine patches, uh, or you can have virenicline, which is a, a, like a nicotine, nicotinic partial agonist. Or you can go stop with cold turkey, and you could go on Zyban, the appropriate to, to help you through that. Uh, but relapse rates are very high. I mean, you know, even the best treatment with virenicline, you know, you still, most people use it, stay on it, because if they stop, they relapse. And that's why something like psilocybin, which kind of resets your whole attitude to smoking, can be, it's, the effects there are much more powerful. And Matt Johnson in Johns Hopkins showed, I think of his 18 subjects, 15 stopped smoking completely for a year. It was amazing. In fact, it was such a powerful effect, effect that he's, uh, he's just got the first ever modern-day grant since the banning, first grant in 50 years to study psilocybin for addiction. That's going to do a double-blind study uh, uh, in relation to uh, tobacco smoking, with alcohol, yeah, well, you got more choice with alcohol. There are there are anti relapse drugs. There's one's called a camprosate, campral in many countries. One's called narmaphene. So camp- a camprosate, you stay abstinent and it helps you stop craving. 
Naltrexone is an anti-binging agent that reduces the um, your desire to binge or the, your, the, the switch from drinking to binging. Uh, some people use naltrexone for the same purpose. In some countries, Italy and in Austria, they use a drug called sodium oxabate, GHB, as a kind of way of stopping people craving alcohol because it uh, it substitutes for alcohol and and it's less harmful than alcohol if you use it sensibly. So so those are the those are the main options. Some people use disulfiram so that if you if you drink you throw up, but that's it's quite hard to persuade people to take that unless they've got a partner who's you know going to supervise it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, there's one, one that you mentioned there. I was just thinking of um, some other aspects there, I guess this, there's a whole phenomenon as well. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it, but um, just, I want to share my experience with um, a potent serotonin antagonist that I've personally used um, ciproheptidine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when I, when I administered that, like orally, like two milligrams, it would reduce, you know, obviously lower my mood and make me feel pretty flat for a few days, but it has this profound rebound effect. Interesting. Many days later. And I'm just wondering, is there such a thing as feeling good upon withdrawal of a medical? Oh, yes. yes. Well, I say that we published a paper in the Lancet, a letter in the Lancet, yeah, when was that? Was it? I can't remember that. It was about 1986, I think. Wow. No, maybe showing people who stop benzos, they often go into withdrawal, but they have facilitated orgasms, <laughs> and that's and that's because that's because sometimes spontaneous orgasms, and that, similar to what you were describing with alcohol. That's probably because you get some kind of noradrenergic rebound. But this, what you're describing is interesting. It's hyperheptidine rebound. Now that that I've not come across. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't, yeah, have you come across other people experiencing it? Yeah, well, I'm trying to I'm trying to build up a bit of a a bit of a community to. I found numerous other individuals that also get that paradoxical rebound effect, and I've I've hypothesized various mechanisms because I, I understand that it's a histamine antagonist, it's a D two dopamine antagonist, it's a it's a very dirty drug. It does appear to have like a very messy. Bonding. Yeah, I mean, I was assuming it might be a serotonin rebound, which would kind of, but it could be histamine rebound. That's the a, a point, actually. Could that could do, could do that? So the way you test it, by the way, is you get one of these new. I don't know if you have them, but um, these new histamine presynaptic H three antagonists, which promote histamine. I, I have, I have, I have tried um, a better better histine. Better history. All right, then add it. Does that is that a similar similar experience? Um, it took a longer time. Uh, the thing is, the better histine um, acutely was making me way more um, monkey brain because it was the histamines is also yeah, I, you know it's, it's a different experience. Then. Okay, I just so it probably is the serotonin rebound. Then I think yeah yeah that's what I suspect is the I'm I'm sort of suspecting because there's um, I'm not sure if because it's um, everyone's trying to look for a cure to something known as um, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, which is um, persistent sexual dysfunction following the use of SSRIs. Um, well, yeah. That's interesting because we, I mean, I, I did write one of the very, I think I might write the first paper on cyproheptidine and sexual dysfunction on SSRIs. Oh, wow. Back in about 19, I don't remember, but. It was quite a long time ago. That must have been, that was probably 1989, 1990. So we we know that the sexual dysfunction on SSRIs is due to serotonin receptor stimulation and the cyproheptidine blocks that. And so we yeah. can use cyproheptidine as a way of helping people regain normal function on SSRIs. But what you described, I've not come across the, the post-SSRI syndrome before, but it it is plausible, I suppose, given the fact that these drugs do produce some adaptive changes. What is quite what is interesting is we found when we when we're using psychedelics to treat depression in people who've been on SSRIs, we've got to get them off because they don't work. But even when you've got them off for a while, there doesn't there seems to be some interference with the um, with the psychedelic effect. So it's possible that that there is an enduring change in. And those receptors or those receptor couplings, which is what you're experiencing. Yeah, I didn't know. I, didn't, I haven't come across it clinically, but it's 
I think that's plausible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a it really is a a million dollar question at the moment because there's there's a whole there's an entire forum on online called the PSSD forum, and mm-hmm. there's thousands of different theories as to what they believe is contributing to it. And the mm-hmm. biggest one at the moment is five HT one A desensitization that one A autoreceptor um, desensitization. Well, that may happen. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. 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 So I guess maybe something else we can we can explore, David, is some of the By the way, on that point, on that point, buspirone is a 5-HT1A agonist. Now that has been shown to help alleviate sexual dysfunction from SSRIs. So it might be worth trying in in your um in people with the, with the post-SSRI syndrome. That would be and it's a very easy, you know, it's a perfectly safe drug to use. Does it have a fit? I mean, I've, I know a lot of people have actually responded very well to bisperone for PSSD. Does it have a does it have a clean binding activity? Do we know a lot about the drug itself? Or yeah, it's pretty one A selective, a little bit of D two, but it, but that I don't think that would explain it. I think it's mostly I think it's the one A, the five HD one A activity mm-hmm. that would do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's so people. Okay, well, I think you're right. If if bisperone remes is it, it's likely to be. Something to do with the one A being desensitized. Yeah, and you'll yeah. turn it back on with buspirone. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll definitely look into that. I might even, I, I might even discuss that with you a bit, bit after the podcast at some at some stage because it's um, all I can say is that you, yeah, it would be alleviating a lot of suffering for a lot of a lot of people out there because they're. Right. Yeah. Good. I mean, there's another one called tandospirone, which is also it's certainly sold in Japan. I don't know how easy it is to get elsewhere. That might be a bit cleaner. It's a more modern depression. Is that a derivative? Is that a similar molecule to bisperone? I think it, they're all they're all azapyrones. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, chemically, that they're probably pretty similar. I thought. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to chat more about that. I guess um something else, David. I guess with the um, I know you're quite big on the harm reduction strategies, things like that. So maybe do you want to expand a little bit more on that term harm reduction and what you've looked into there. Well, it's, yes, I mean, it seems to me that um, uh, if you're going to try to, what's the, well, I'm a doctor, what's the purpose of medicine? The purpose of medicine is to reduce suffering, to reduce harm. Yeah, and I don't take a moral view of people who use drugs. I mean, how can you when countries make billions allowing alcohol to be sold and taxed, and then they oppose the use of the drugs like cannabis or magic mushrooms, which are much less harmful? I mean, the drug laws have always seemed to me completely, they're either political or morally based or some combination of the two. And they're exactly the wrong approach to dealing with the problems of drug harms. And if you want to reduce drug harms and you do a harm reduction approach, because A, it's morally correct, and B, we know it works, whereas we know that stopping drug use doesn't work. Criminalizing drug users generally fails to work. In fact, we've got millions of, well, not millions, but lots of examples of how Prohibitionist policies actually make things much more dangerous for drug users and more harmful. Mm. Yeah, I guess as part of um, the integration of some of these you know, psychedelic therapies, what you prefaced before in regards to making sure everyone that's listening into this podcast to know that it, it needs to be done under clinical supervision, correct? This this sort of application of these therapies. Well, I think I think. Um, most psychedelics are not given under clinical supervision, obviously, because they're not medicines. I think for, at this stage, when they're being used as medicines, it's preferable, if you can, to be in a medical trial. Mm. So A, you're, as a patient, protected, and, and B, the data is collected in a, a useful way. Now, for many people, that's impossible. So what do I say to people? What I say, if we can't find a trial, then if you can find some uh, sensible, established, uh, well-run retreat that can give you access, then that might be helpful. But whatever you do, don't just go into the woods and pop your mushrooms yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a bit of a risky risky venture that could lead you into uh, climbing climbing the trees. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, and... uh, and whatever you do, you know, make sure there's someone with you who isn't doing it the same. So 
you've got protection if things go wrong. But, but I mean, there are quite a lot of, I mean, certainly in Latin America now, there's, there's you know, a vast number of, um, uh, of shamanistic retreats people can go to, and they're all now, I mean, they're happening in the States, they're happening in Southeast Asia, you know. So <clears throat> it's not so difficult now to find places which you can trust uh, that aren't medical, but are clo- yeah, at least do have skilled um, protagonists there who can pretend, you know, who will, make sure that what you get is actually the right amount because that's the biggest problem knowing actually what you're getting yeah yeah and uh there was one compound that we sort of skimmed upon and that was um i'd I'd love to just quickly touch on um dmt as a endogenous molecule that's now used exogenously um so maybe you want to explore a bit about yeah what do we know about dmt well dmt is dimethyltryptamine i mean it's it can be found in the body um the amounts in the body are very, very low, unfortunately. You know, there are, I mean, there are, you know, there are people who believe, and maybe you are one of those, that this is, it is, it has some physiological effect in the body. It's hard to prove that. Um, um, but uh, it's certainly, when you give a pharmacological dose intravenously, it has a very profound, uh, rather immediate psychedelic effect, which is similar, but more fast in onset to things like LSD and psilocybin. And now being developed... Uh, by a couple of companies as possible treatments for depression. And it, it's quite interesting now because so you've, you've got this one end of the spectrum, you've got a short, sharp burst of psychedelic experience with DMT, and then you've got uh, the other end, you've got things like psilocybin, four to six hours, LSD, eight to 10 hours. It's going to be very interesting to see which of those different time courses produces the best outcomes. Undoubtedly, we will find out in the next uh, next few years. Then. Mm, it's really, really fascinating in terms of... Um, one of, one of my actual close friends who I think I'm pretty sure he studied at Imperial College in London, um, Dr. Jack Aloka recently, he's a PhD in, in uh, sleep. He um, recently just underwent IV DMT therapy. Um, so I think he's going to be sharing. Oh, is it with us? At, at, is he part of our study? I, be, I believe he must have been. He must have been. He was there a couple of weeks ago. Was it a few weeks? Well, ago? that well, that case. That's yeah. That's the study we're doing. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good for him. Wow. Yes. That was him. That was him. Yeah. He was posting some um, snippets of it on on uh, Instagram. So what 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 was that study involving exactly? This study. This is the problem with DMT. Is how do you take it? So the, obviously DMT was discovered. Well. Psychoactive, psychoactive aspects of DMT were discovered by the indigenous peoples of the Amazon probably a few thousand years ago. And they worked out that if you brew up a cocktail of, of a plant which makes DMT and another plant which makes an enzyme inhibitor called harmaline, those two together, the harmaline prevents the breakdown of DMT in the liver and the gut. So you can drink the drink and get DMT in your brain. But if you just drink DMT, the liver breaks it down. And uh, I see that's why psilocybin is so clever, <laughs> because it bypasses the liver to some extent because it's got the phosphate group on it. Anyway, so, um, so if you've got pure DMT, which is what you kind of need really for Western medicine, then you can take it, you can smoke it, but you don't quite know how much you're getting. Uh, you can, or you can inject it. So our studies, when all our, we did, we've done a couple of brain imaging studies with DMT, injecting it. And then about a year ago, a company came along and said, well, we're going to try to turn DMT into a medicine. Can you help us? And we said, well, sure, you know, we can work together on this as long as we're as a co-development and you support us as well. So now we're doing a DMT infusion mm. to see if we can get a longer effect. Because our imaging studies where we just gave a pulse, just give two injections of DMT, they last about 20 minutes. So now we're infusing DMT, which is what your friend probably had, just, uh, to see if we can get a, a more if we can find what an acceptable, tolerable level of infusion is for a tolerable period, that would then potentially give us a more powerful antidepressant effect. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that study, we now know what is a safe dose in normal volunteers, and now we're moving to, um, to doing it in some patients. Phenomenal. In, in terms of um, synthesis capacity, is it f- fairly difficult for researchers to synthesize, or is it... Like pure, de- I'd imagine, is it expensive to synthesize or is it fairly easy? I don't think it's difficult. It's a small molecule. Yeah. 
I, I don't know. Actually, I do not know the synthetic route, to be honest. But I, but it can't be. It's not. It's not that difficult to methylate molecules. I don't. I don't. Good question. I don't. Know, I can't answer it, but I don't think it's going to be. It's not a complex molecule. No. Yeah, it will be interesting. I'll keep. I'll keep up today with um some of that research. You say maps will be. Will they be presenting that research? Those research findings at all? Or no, no. The company's called Small Pharma. Maps is Maps is MDMA. Maps is MDMA. Phase three will come out at the end of the year. Yep. We hope. Cool. Okay. Well, guess um, David. Today, today's been an absolute pleasure. There's a lot, a lot we've sort of skimmed the surface on. I'd love to finish off by asking you um, what area of research are you most excited to see you know, more emphasis on in, in the future? Well, I mean, I'm very interested to see how broadly we can use psychedelics. We've got an anorexia study going on. We're also collaborating with the University of Sydney to, do, uh, to help them do a, a, a psilocybin anorexia study. But my other main, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the use of these drugs for addictions. That's where I'd really like to go. And then on the other side, of course, I've got my alcohol alternative, you know, my Alcarel, my Synthalol, which I'm trying to develop so that people can get the pleasures of drinking without well, many fewer harms from it. So, so watch this space. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, uh, Professor David Nutt, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you. It's been a delight. Thank you as well. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>